You may be seated. Thank you. Today's a momentous day. Not only is it Sunday, January 26, 2020, meaning the last January service uh, for this year, uh, it's also the last time we'll be worshiping in this particular room. So starting next week, uh, not only will we be changing time, but just due to the sheer, uh, I guess, size of people, like the amount of people, um, the size of the group, not the size of the people, but the size of the group that is expanding. Uh, yeah, I think, I think it's, uh, <laughs> we're going to appropriately move to a room that will hopefully better suit us uh, as we continue to expand. So, um, yeah, enjoy this last service in this room and enjoy these Christmas decorations as I, I think they're quite outdated now. <laughs> or quite early, I guess. So for the month of January, we've been looking at the figures of Adam and Eve collectively as one, right, one flesh. And we've been looking at uh, their journey from creation all the way to the fall, which we examined last week. So hopefully you've picked up some things that are important in the creation, the root and the natural identity that we're made in. And then last week, looking at the causation of fall and the depravity um, that exists within us, right? Um, And today we're going to be looking at the repercussion of that fall called the curse, right? I'm sure you've read this portion of text before. And so let's turn to Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 24. And we're going to read this latter part of the third chapter of Genesis, where God indicates and articulates the curse against mankind. And it's divided into three sections, three parts. The curse is, anyways, one, uh, one curse to the serpent, one curse to the woman, and one curse to the man, right? And so we have to look at it kind of sectionally, but also collectively as one curse as well. So let's read Genesis 3, 14 to 24. I'll read from my Bible. You can follow along in yours. This is what the Word of God says. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle, more than any beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from, here's Revelation 22, the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. 
Amen. It's the word of God. We want to pray this morning um, as we begin uh, this final section of our study on Adam and Eve. Next week, we'll be moving on to Noah. Um, And so for the month of February, we'll be examining uh, the flood narrative, of course, and uh, also the post-flood narrative. I think it's really interesting. So anyways, we'll be looking at Noah. But today's sermon is entitled, Grace in the Curse. So last week was Fall from Grace. Today's Grace in the Curse. So we'll be looking at that. Um, I want to pray for a couple of things before we begin. Obviously in the world, I mean, what is dominating the news today is not surprisingly Donald Trump's impeachment trials, uh, which you would think would be global news <clears throat> of, ma- of great magnitude. Uh, but rather we have an unfortunate coronavirus in China, uh, starting from the Wuhan city and unfortunately uh, quickly uh, reaching all corners of the earth Uh, yesterday we had the first case in toronto as jesse shared with us and so we want to pray for the uh, unfortunate fatalities that people are experiencing in uh, in their lives as well as uh, among their loved ones people who are losing those people people in the city of wuhan who are locked down i don't know if you've seen the videos and photos of it it's like a zombie apocalypse scene right Uh, and so we want to pray for hopeful resolution to the situation I don't think it's any more uh, serious than SARS was. And so if you remember that epidemic then, um, I'm sure uh, the World Health Organization and other organizations around the world will do their best uh, to resolve this situation as fast as possible. What's really quite unfortunate is that China is building hospitals within a week. Do you know they built a hospital in six days? Can you believe that? Just a hospital, like to have more space for people. And um, at the same time, like it takes them years to build, you know, like, other buildings of importance right for like schools for example for their uh, elementary kids um but anyways let's not bash on china today let's pray for them um secondly there was an earthquake uh magnitude 6.7 in the eastern part of turkey um and unfortunately there were some fatalities there as well uh, and so i've reached out to some people in turkey just asking for some prayer topics uh they don't know anyone in the east <laughs> they weren't in the east uh the region we go to is predominantly in the West, and so they were unaffected by it. Uh, but yeah, unfortunately, there were some deaths as a result of the earthquake. So let's pray for resolution there. And then finally, let's pray uh, this morning as the Word of God uh, ministers over us, and hopefully the Holy Spirit will be with us this morning as we learn from the Spirit and learn from God the truth of His Word. And so we want to pray for that. Our unreached people group of the day, which I forgot. It's the first time I forgot in a year. Uh, the Sali of India, also in the southern region, uh, very similar to last week, 1.02 million of them, 0% Christian, 0% evangelical, completely unreached. Their main religion being Hindu. Uh, we want to pray for the Sali, S-A-L-I, of India. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. We pray for your word to minister to us this morning, that the Holy Spirit will bring about revelation of the truth that is within this text, a text so powerful and meaningful to us that continues to resonate and divide humanity today. We pray, Lord Father, um, that our sin would not cloud us from knowing and understanding, but rather that you would help us uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit to be enriched by your word. We thank you so much this morning, and we pray, Lord Father, for the Sali of India, the over one million of these people in the southern parts of India. We pray, Lord Father, for the evangelization and the gospelization of this community. We pray for missional efforts among this people group so that they would one day be reached with the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord Father, for the unbelievable amount of catastrophe we observe in the world today. 
We pray first and foremost for the people of the city of Wuhan and the people in China who are greatly affected, unfortunately, by uh, this virus. And we pray, Lord Father, for a quick resolution and hopefully uh, some kind of bacterial solution or antibacterial solution to this uh, issue. I'm sure there are scientists and doctors working on that right now. And we pray for uh, a quick antidote uh, so that people would not uh, be affected and die from this virus. For those who have already experienced death and loss, we pray for peace and comfort in this hour of grief um, over their hearts. We pray for Turkey as well, the eastern part of Turkey affected by an earthquake. We pray for the families, again, affected by death and the friends who are affected by death. Lord, would you be with them in this time um, as they uh, are, are currently trying to recover from this earthquake. So, Lord, we know each week there are tragedies to pray over. Um, but as we will experience today, uh, there is grace in this world, even in the fallen world of curse. We thank you so much. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, our sermon is entitled Grace in the Curse. And you might wonder, how? How could that be? How could there be grace in the curse? Now, we experienced already in the garden there was grace. And we experienced that even in the fall, like at least the procedure and the narrative of the fall and the sequential narrative of the fall, there was grace, right? God exercised grace. So our story began in the early parts of January. Our story began in a garden of grace, the Garden of Eden, right? Garden of grace. And has now brought us to the curse of creation. So we went from the garden of grace to the curse of creation. Sin is, unfortunately, like this coronavirus, it is a virus. And it affects and infects every aspect of everything that inter it interacts with. When we sin, we like to think of it as being like a personal thing that only affects me. There is a repercussion that happens because of our sinful nature, because of our sinful acts, that affects people and things around us, right? When we sin, it affects others and other things. There is no tolerance for sin on God's end. No tolerance. It's a zero tolerance policy. Do not confuse God's grace with tolerance of sin. This is a this is exactly what Paul was warning us. He was saying, oh, if I, if I now have Christ and I have been saved, do I now, am I now able to just sin as much as I want and get away with it? No, that is not the message of Jesus, right? It's not toleration of sin. When we say Jesus paid it all, when we say Jesus atoned for our sins, when, Jesus, when we say Jesus died for us, when Jesus took away that penalty, we don't mean that the penalty was removed and wiped off the table. He paid it. There's zero toleration of sin. No tolerance of sin on God's end. And that's the way we would want it. Why would you want a God, or why would you want to worship a God that tolerates immorality? What then hope is there for the judgment of the wicked? For a God like that could face Hitler and be like, I forgive you for no reason at all. There is a price that was paid. It's just that we weren't the ones paying it. Although we can observe God's immense grace in the earlier part of chapter 3, as we read last week, right, verses 1 to 13, where 
in the midst of man's constant stumbling before God. Remember the questions? Where are you? He hides behind a bush, right? And God's like, where are you? And he's like, here I am. I'm kind of like hiding from you, right? I, th- I saw you. I heard you coming and I hid. And then there was God. Well, why are you hiding? Why are you ashamed? Are you, who told you you were naked? And Adam's like, uh, remember that woman you gave me? <laughs> right? And there's just this constant stumbling, blaming each other. And yet God is gracious in those moments to exercise patience. He continues to give them chance after chance to repent in the first 13 verses of Genesis 3. And yet they do not. Much like our own condition, sometimes we sin and all we want to do is blame others for it. I only sinned because of. I only reacted this way appropriately because of. God, isn't this the right reaction in response to this thing? We need to be cautious of our attitude towards our own sin. Constantly reminding ourselves to be honest and transparent before the Lord. For He knows anyway. A plan is set forth then in this portion, in this (coughs) latter half of chapter 3 of Genesis. A plan set forth and articulated in the form of a curse. How could this be? How could a curse be the solution to our curse? How appropriate that mankind's hope rests and would come in the form of a curse. Why do I say this is appropriate? Well, the very demonstration of God's wrath against sin was what? The cross. The cursed tree. God does not hold back in unleashing punishment against all parties in this sequence involved in the great fall of Genesis 3. But read carefully, and what you will carefully observe is that God also outlines a carefully crafted plan that will bring forth a Savior for all mankind that will take on this curse that God implements. And in fact, this man will be cursed himself. And in fact, he will eventually become, the apostle says, the curse on our behalf, for our sake, that man should be with God again. Brothers and sisters, this is God's grace. But this is also his curse. Let's take a look. Three sections of this curse. Uh, Verse 14 to 15 articulates the curse to the serpent. And then you have verse 16, the curse to the woman and then you have verses 17 to 19 the curse to the man and so we're going to observe these three sections of the curse to the serpent to the woman to the man and hopefully what will you what you will realize is god's the beginnings of god's plan unfolding verse 14 as a result of adam and eve's disobedience of eating the forbidden fruit god cursed all other creatures now if you're an elephant in the garden you're going what the heck right Thanks a lot, Adam and Eve, right? Thanks a lot, bro. All of creation is cursed. Every single atomic thing on, under God's cre- creation and all of that he made was cursed as a part of creation. Everything is deprived into a fallen state. I'd like to see an unfallen hippo. What does that look like? No living creature was spared in the curse. No living thing. No thing, in fact, was spared 
in the curse that God places as a punishment over all things. Just as he made creatures prior to man in the first few days, and then a man in the sixth, and then he placed all of those things, vegetation and creatures, under the stewardship and the care of man, under the grace of God, just as they were sustained under the work and stewardship of the man as the keeper of the garden, they fell along with the man when he fell as part of the curse. Just like when Lucifer falls, all the angels fall. Why? Sin is a contagion. It affects every single thing it touches. At a singular moment when he ate that fruit, all of creation became despicable before God. He could not even bear the fallen leaves. The only thing that was spared is the tree of life, which was set apart, if you remember. Adam didn't have stewardship over that tree. Everything else that he had stewardship over fell. Romans 8, 20 to 22, the apostle says this, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of God, him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free of God. Oh, sorry, set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together. I love this articulation. Paul is, Paul is a modern writer, is he not? Sometimes, sometimes I read Paul, I'm like, this guy, like, this guy write like yesterday? <laughs> like sometimes he writes things that are so articulate. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. now that's gonna make sense later in the curse to the woman. But, that's his articulation. Everything weeps as man falls. It's God's grand demonstration that sin is serious. It will not be tolerated. Now the specific form that, the ser- that the Satan took on, the serpent, the snake, as some, some translations have it, is specifically cursed above all creatures, the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us that it may have had legs. In fact, it implies that snakes had legs. Now, you think snakes are already gross, slithering on their bellies. Imagine snakes with legs. That's just a giant centipede, and that's gross, right? Um, This is weird, right? It's cursed above all creatures as its legs are removed and forced to slither on its belly on the ground. It is symbolically brought down, and in fact, literally brought down, to the lowest of low positions and put in a place of humility. The snake is an international and intergenerational image of craftiness, deceit, and danger. The snake is an animal avoided and associated with what? In almost every human society. Evil. Note that in the book of Numbers, The image of the serpent is made into a bronze statue that is used to foreshadow the cross and its salvific nature and power. That image, of course, is a precursor and powerful image, in fact, of God's redemption and his plan to redeem, to put this whole ordeal with this dang snake 
up on its feet. He's reversing that. What killed you before will now save you. Here's the precursor and then there's Jesus. There's an incredible thread between this sequence that we're reading all the way to the narrative of Christ. Incredible thread. Just got to follow it. Man's fall as the greatest of all creation, right? Um, is the fall of all, essentially. And so as the steward, as I mentioned earlier, the house falls with its owner. And so creation lives in depravity, just as man does. And unfortunately, the vegetation and animals and everything in it face the same consequence. But specifically, this animal, this serpent, is cursed above all. It may be noted here that Adam and Eve are spared. Maybe noted here. Some commentators make this specific, specific comment. It may be noted that Adam and Eve are spared in allowing to keep their legs, but are probably witnessing in this moment a grand horror as they see a snake lose its legs and slither away. Watching an animal become rendered legless. Disgusting. And you can imagine what's going through their mind and their heart. They're looking at their legs and they're going, Oh crap. <laughs> if that's what he gets for tempting us to eat the fruit, what do we get for eating the fruit? And you can only imagine the fear that consumed them in that moment. This is no God to mess with. Verse 15, this verse is monumental. The differentiation between 14 and 15 must be made. 14 is the curse of the creature, the form of the, of the serpent and the deceiver. And 15 is the curse of the actual deceiver, Satan, that embodied that form. So this verse is monumental as it refers to, of course, what we refer to as, and I've mentioned this many times before, the Proto-Evangelion, or in some variations, the Proto-Evangelium. Same word, okay? It... Proto meaning first, Evangelion meaning gospel. First, gospel. Now that God has cursed the form that Satan took, he then curses Satan. Satan thought he got away with it. He's like, oh, great. He only cursed the form, right? And then God is like, wait, Satan, I got something for you too, right? And Satan's like, okay. He curses Satan himself. And at first glance, it may appear superficially that no real curse is being given at all. At least not in the immediacy. Satan is told his offspring, which we know later according to the apostle in his, in his letters, are unbelievers, right? unbelievers of Christ. They will be crushed. Him and his unbelievers will be crushed. Crushed where? On the head. Head meaning the life. The life of this thing will be destroyed. The root of it, everything will be crushed. Will be destroyed by the who? By who? A singular offspring of the woman. The singular in the Hebrew word meaning seed or offspring obviously refers in our New Testament theology to Jesus Christ. God refers to the woman's offspring in the singular masculine, he. He will crush the head of the snake forever. Right. All of a sudden, switching that. So there's your precursor to Christ. There's your proto-evangelion, the first instance of the gospel. However, before that fatal blow, that fatal and final blow, 
It will only come after Satan bruises this offspring's heel, indicating a momentary attack that will destroy this offspring. Note that the heel is the very part of this offspring that a creature slithering on their belly could even reach to strike. And that in order for this bruise to even happen, here's the crazy part. In order for this to even happen, this offspring of the woman would have to lower and bring himself into the striking distance of the creature, incarnating into the world and the level of that creature where the serpent is. So you really break this down, you're starting to see first instance of the gospel. But the key part is this. The serpent bites, bruises the heel. Jesus dies on the cross. Unfortunately, that is the beginning of the death of the biter. (coughs) Causes his own death. If you ever watch Passion of the Christ, the very first scene of the movie, The snake is slithering through the Garden of Gethsemane. Very first scene, right? It's kind of freaky, actually. It's very reminiscent of the first, one of the first scenes of Harry Potter number two, right? Where the snake is slithering, right? Anyways, the snake is slithering through the Garden of Gethsemane, all of a sudden biting the heel of a man, and all of a sudden Jesus' feet stomps on his head, and the scene ends, and then passion of the Christ, right? Like, watch it again. Just watch that first few minutes of the movie. That's how Mel Gibson wanted to start the narrative to help you understand this is Genesis 3 in John fulfilled Romans 16 20 the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet we are to remember that as the church of Christ we actually participate now in the defeat of Satan As co-heirs with Christ and benefactors of his accomplished work on the cross, you and I are made new in Christ and we enter as adopted members into the family of God, making us part of that singular woman's seed. Your life may not seem that great to you, or maybe it does, I don't know, nor may it seem that meaningful to you, and at times may seem without purpose. But know this, that every Christian life, I don't know if this helps you put meaning and purpose and, you know, all this stuff into your life, but listen carefully. Know this, every Christian life contributes to the eternal destruction of Satan and his realm and his reign. As we put our faith in Jesus, he crushes the head of Satan. Here's Martin Luther on this particular verse. Great reformer Martin Luther on this verse, verse 15. This is what he comments. This singular text, I added singular, I'm paraphrasing. This text embraces and comprehends within itself everything noble and glorious that is to be found anywhere in the scriptures. That's Luther speaking. This one verse. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? And then here's the woman. God turns to the woman. You can imagine the fear that is just over, over, overwhelming her at this point. Now, if I'm Adam, I want to go second. Because if I'm following the pattern here, 
it's getting worse, okay? So if I'm Adam, like, oh, I hope I'm second, right? Because technically she, you know, she brought the fruit to me. Maybe I'll get off a little easier here, right? But no, it's woman. So now you can imagine both of them are terrified. Eve is like, oh, shoot. And Adam's like, oh, shoot, right? Like, he's really scared. Verse 16, God increases greatly the woman's pain in childbirth. Now, there's no mention of what childbirth was, would have been like or was like without sin. We don't know. But what we know is it's increasingly less painful, right? That's the curse. But the implication is made to us that the fallen version of child giving and childbearing is far worse than the prior. Far, far worse. Like if you think a snake losing its legs is bad, this is way worse than that. This element of pain that God has increased in childbirth is symbolic of this. It's a terrifyingly honest reminder that women are to bring physically, by the flesh, children into this world just as she brought sin into this world. It's a terrifying reminder of that. And you know what man cannot do? And what man cannot help you with when you're giving birth? Giving birth. <laughs> we can't help you. We can't do anything. All we can do is watch you just in pain as you bring forth beauty, right? do anything and so it's this unbelievable reminder this symbolic reminder from God this is your curse the pain is a reminder that she has sinned and now all of the human race will be born into that it demonstrates that sin is passed down people to people, generation to generation, time after time. Nobody escapes this curse. <clears throat> Unless you're not born of human seed, like Jesus, no sperm. Women are to teach and raise their children as a reversal of this curse. Post-Christ, in 1 Timothy, Paul teaches women in the church in a godly manner and conduct to reverse this curse by teaching their children, enriching their children, saturating the home with gospel proclamation. That's how you reverse this curse. I bore you into a world of sin. Now I will teach you how to get out of it. It is a curse, but also a blessing. Are you seeing the trend here? It is a curse, but there is grace in this. Sin has now also destroyed the perfect matrimony between husband and wife. Man and woman. A God-designed institution. Here's John MacArthur. Sin has turned the harmonious system of God-ordained rules into distasteful struggles of self-will. Theologian David Guzik says this, This same word for desire... In verse 15 is again used in chapter 4 verse 7 of Genesis of the desire of sin to master over Cain. Because of the curse, he says, 
Eve would have to now fight a desire to master her husband. A desire that works against God's ordained order for the home. So here's the reality. In our fallen world, man will tyrannically use and abuse his headship gifted by God. We will abuse it. And women, because of that abuse, will oppose that headship as an act of self-will and pride and desire to rule over men. What was once beautiful is now ugly. So the natural humanistic conclusion is then this. And it is the conclusion of the feminist movements of the 60s and 70s. Total equality in every sphere of life is the only solution. We must have everything on equal rights. And what do we get out of that? What, what has that born? Well, I'll tell you what it's born. It's born our sexual movements. It's born our moral movements. It's born our adoption tolerance. Since Roe v. Wade in the, in the 1970s, when that law passed in the States, 61 million babies have been aborted in 50 years. 61 million! That's double the population of Canada. And you think that's ugly? They're passing laws in states right now that will allow babies to be aborted in the third trimester. Like the, the final stage, the day before birth, you can abort a child. You can now, they're fighting in the state of New York, you should be able to abort a child post giving birth. Why? Because it doesn't damage the woman's body. We need to preserve the woman's body so the baby should be allowed to naturally be birthed and then we should abort the child. I don't know about you, but by any legal definition across all of human history, that's called murder. The curse is yielding its results. The Bible does not demote or discourage, brother. Don't misunderstand it. The Bible does not demote or discourage equal status and value under God for both genders. But what it does discourage is the contemporary modern thought that men and women are made exactly the same for exactly the same functions. This is not true not even on a biological level, nor is it true on a spiritual level. It is not a declaration, do not understand the Bible incorrectly, that man is better than woman because they are heads. <coughs> In a fallen world, we have a great tendency to misconstrue, misuse, and misunderstand God's design to make it fit the design that we prefer. And I don't know about you, but every great civilization in human history has fallen. From the Roman, to the Babylonian, to the Ottoman, to even Napoleon and the Mongolian Empire. It does not matter. Every empire has fallen. You know why? Because no one in all of human history has ever been able to create the perfect civilization. You can't. You are fallen. It will not work. Here's Susan Foe. Because I think it's appropriate we get a woman's take on this. 
As a result of the fall, man no longer rules easily. He must fight from and for his headship. Sin has corrupted both the willing submission of the wife and the loving headship of the husband. The woman's desire is to control, to usurp his divinely appointed headship, and he must learn to master her if he can. So the rule of love founded in paradise, the garden, is replaced now by a struggle, tyranny, and domination. And then God turns to the man. And now he is like terrified, right? It's like, oh my goodness, it's getting worse. Here's verse 17 to 18. When the woman came to Adam with the fruit and gave some for him to eat, he ate it. And at that moment, what did we articulate last week? Adam abandoned his post. He abandoned his role as her leader and as the head of the home and instead chose to be led by her. (coughs) Eve also abandoned her role. She was the helper, the one who was to function in the helping, assisting role to not only multiply and be fruitful, but to keep the garden as watchers over it, to hold her husband accountable. Instead, she leads her, him, her husband, into sin. A reversal at that moment arose. Adam also listened to the words of his wife over the authority of the word of God. Hmm, where have I heard that before? People listening to people's words over the word of God. Hmm. Doesn't sound too foreign, right? In that monumental moment of collapse, our reversal of role was made And so is the reality and the cursed nature of our world today. I think God was kind of, I don't know if God's humorous to my level. (laughs) I don't know, but if let's just, I'm personifying God in my imagination here. I think he's saying, oh yeah, that's the world you want to live in? So be it. That's what you get. The curse is the very thing you wanted in that moment. So here you go. See how much you like this life. The ground, in the Hebrew, it literally means ground. (laughs) It's ground. I thought it had some like spiritual meaning behind it. So I looked it up like crazy and it just means ground. It's cursed. It will produce fruit, but only as a result of hard labor from mankind. Only as a result of time. Only through thorns and thistles will this land, this ground produce fruit. The ground will only yield fruit but it will yield fruit on the premise of what? God's provision of what? Sunlight, rain, and proper climate conditions. So you can work all you want. If God says no rain, then you're done. The ground that was once a rich source of unlimited food for man to enjoy will now be the source of his labor and a symbol and reminder of their reliance on God. And so as I was thinking about this, This is not a biblical interpretation of the text. So don't take this as exegesis. This is just me personally reflecting and hearing something from the Holy Spirit. And I don't know if it's true or not, so you can forget it if it's not true. But this is just what I felt as I was reading this. As man has to work the ground to yield its fruit through thorns and thistles, through time and effort, reliance on God's provision. What did that remind me of? All of that language reminded me of my sanctification. No wonder that our journeys as Christians at times feels like a curse. Right? Like the ground that Adam had to work. 
Yeah, we will yield fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all that stuff. But only through what? Through tough seasons, through tough times, only as a result of God's provision and testing, only through God's grace in our efforts and labor and our faith in Him. It was once easy to be Christian in the garden. It's not anymore. It's not. Just as this earth once laid buffets at the, dis at the disposal of mankind, eat as much as you like, man is now cursed that he must submit to the ground to work it, to yield the fruit that he must eat. <clears throat> his survival is reliant on his effort. Brothers and sisters, our survival as Christians is reliant on the provision of God and our efforts for him. You could sit around and say, God will provide, God will provide, and do nothing. That's not the proper response to the love, love and grace of mercy of God. Our efforts don't produce salvation, but they certainly, certainly are the correct response to a man of grace, a woman of God. Finally, verse 19, God said that when the fruit was eaten, man will surely die. When you eat, you will die. That's the command. Although, we saw this last week, when they ate, they didn't die. Although I think they should have. I think mercy, was, mercy and grace was exercised in that moment. And so although God exercised grace in preserving their life in the immediacy of their rebellion, <coughs> He still fulfills that promise, or at least that consequence, in this curse, by limiting the days of man. You were once immortal, you will now be finite and mortal. And your mortality, your mortality puts you on the clock. We all know today, you and I sitting in this room, what death is and the imminence of death in our life. None of us has experienced death, but we certainly understand it as a concept. So we understand what death is and we understand the imminence and the unavoidability of death. But imagine being Adam and Eve, where they have not experienced death, they have not seen death, and they know nothing of death. They have no sense of what death is. But being told, your days are now numbered. What does that even mean, God? And you, Adam goes on to live over 100, uh, 900 years, nearly a millennia. Imagine, I imagine when he's 800 years old, he's like, are you sure my days are numbered? These are a lot of days, God. But that day that he breathed his last, what was he thinking? I just think Adam is such an interesting fellow. The first man. And he died. And what is he thinking? <laughs> He's not even the first guy to die. He died after his son. So when he sees Abel die at the hand of his brother, imagine what Adam's thinking. He's like, what is this? <laughs> like, Hello? <laughs> Abel, <laughs> what is this? We all know today what death is and its imminence. The threat of eternal death is now on the table. The clock is now clicking on every single human life. How do we know that this curse extends to all of mankind? How do we know? That's why a lot of people ask me, they're like, well, how do we know that Adam's fall, all these things relate to me? I'm like, do you die? Will you die? 
The answer, I, at least as long as I've lived, my short 31 years, every person I've asked this question, will you die? They said, and this is astounding because I've never seen this statistic before, 100%, they said, yes. I've never, I've never done a survey and received 100% same answer. The answer was yes. And you know what that tells me? Yeah, you're cursed, bro. <laughs> like, you're cursed. I was talking to a, like a biology student at UFT once, and I'm like, why do people die? He's like, it's a mystery. Right? Like, biological cells have no reason to slow down, but they do. They just all of a sudden start slowing down, decaying, stop reproducing at the same rate. And he says, it's almost like the body has an internal clock and understands when it's supposed to start decaying. But there's no reason or biological or scientific reasoning for it. It's a mystery. So why? Why do we die? It's weird, right? So I think it does ultimately display the Adam is our forerunner, he is our representative, and he failed as as anyone could ever fail. You know, anytime I failed an exam in university, I always, be, I always told myself, I didn't fail as hard as Adam. <laughs> so I may have failed this exam, but I did not fail in the garden. <laughs> right? I can, always, I can always look to that as my solace. Right? For I did not destroy mankind. <laughs> right? And thus, we are all cursed today because the first Adam failed in his obedience to God, whereas the second Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ, he did not. We are all recipients of Adam's curse, but we are all also, as faithful believers, benefactors of Jesus' death. Adam is cursed most greatly as he was the steward over all creation. So as he fell, so too did all of creation. What an unbelievable burden this man had for the rest of his life, his long life. He had over 900 years to think about what he did. <laughs> A lot of time. Here's my conclusion for today. The cross is the unleashing of God's wrath against the sins of the elect. The cross is also the greatest demonstration of love. So it's an image of wrath and an image of love. It's a demonstration of love mankind has never seen and has ever known. Verses 21 to 24 of our text today show something amazing inserted in the narrative for us to follow. Following the curses of the serpent, the woman, and the man, God places them out of the garden into a foreign land, and He clothes them for us to know today that we can have and do certainly have hope in this God of ours. As dreadful and weary as this day was when they were discarded from that garden, there were better days to come. God takes man out of the garden, but he also clothes and covers them with what? It says animal skins. This is a vast improvement, first and foremost, over their previous vegan garments. But not only that, not only is it a technological advancement, it required for the first time in all of human history the death of innocent life in order that the shame of man would be covered by the hand and grace of God. So let's look at the components of that sequence. It's there, but it could be missed. God's provision covers their sin. So although they are fallen, 
we're given a promise and an image through this clothing of man that God will indeed redeem us out of sin by His gracious hand alone. For one day, another innocent life will be taken. And this time, this innocent life, His robe of righteousness will be imputed on us. In other words, cover us, cover our shame, cover our sin, that when we are before the throne of God, we may be presented as righteous before Him. You see it? Do you see it? Isn't that beautiful? So I pray this morning that you would see this hope and this grace, that this understanding would enlighten your mind and your hearts, that in God's curse against sin, there is also a great message of hope founded on His grace and His grace alone. This story, brothers and sisters, as much as it may seem centric to humanity and their fall, is so much more about God. And so when you read the first three chapters of your Bible, may you bring glory to His name. Let's pray as we conclude and let's reflect on what God has taught us this morning. <clears throat>